that's exactly it, isn't it? It's finding out what is specific to digital to make it engaging, really. That's the most important thing. Like, we have to keep an audience engaged. Otherwise, what are we returning to? Hello, welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by No Dice Collective. I am your host, Joe Chesterman-March, and today we're talking to Ellie Slorak. Ellie is the musical director of Cantos Chamber Choir, and I first met Ellie at university, where she was conducting Ad Salem, and I've been singing with her ever since. Cantos's most recent project was called In the Field, where we recorded some music in a field, and, <laughs> and that was recently released online. We talk about digital experiences and where the future of choral music and classical music might take us post-COVID. We also talk about the UK having very few salaried choirs compared to Europe. We compare Zoom choir experiences and why specialising into choral or orchestral conducting shouldn't be a thing. You're currently listening to Robert Nathaniel Dett's Oh Holy Lord from Cantos's In The Field project. And throughout the podcast, you'll be hearing Rory Wainwright-Johnson's Ave Maria. I hope you enjoy and I'll see you at the end. How are you doing, Ali? Have you got anything else on today? Uh, no, I don't. Classic conductor diary at the moment, completely empty. So very glad to be chatting to you. <laughs> Have you got much on at all? Um, at the moment, not too much. I mean, certainly not compared to what I had before March. I'm doing a lot of virtual choir things. So a lot is just a lot more sitting at my computer. I had a really wonderful week with the BBC Singers a couple of weeks ago, which was incredible mm. and feels like a dream and I can't believe it kind of happened and now it's back to sitting in my bedroom again a <laughs> um, <laughs> couple of things coming up there's a course at the Royal Opera House for uh, a women conductors course which I'm going to be going to in November but not too much to be honest what's it like to conduct the BBC singers quite epic especially when <laughs> you haven't really conducted many things for many months <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I can really count what I've done in, in the last six months conducting wise in real life, you know, on, on my hands. <laughs> so, yeah, they're amazing. Obviously, they just read straight through the music. So it was it was just straight into musical detail and they were really friendly. You know, it was just a lovely atmosphere of making music again. And I think they appreciate how lucky they are because they're BBC workers. They're on salaries to be in a building making music at the moment. Are they the only salaried choir in the UK or is is there another one? I believe they're the only salaried choir connected to an orchestra. I could be wrong. Um, obviously, there were opera choruses. Um, ah, yeah. And then there are groups like the 16 and, and Voches 8 and so on. But in terms of choruses connected to an institution, I think they might be the only salaried group which is kind of crazy, really, in the UK. <laughs> yeah, because you get all these opera choruses around Europe and I understand that they're salaried. And then you get to the UK and it's like, oh, we have one salaried choir and the rest are all freelancers. Yeah, it's bonkers. I mean, I think it's amazing because the UK is effectively propped up by the amateur choral world, really, because if mm. you go to, you know, if you go to watch the Halle and the Halle choir are there, that's an amateur choir singing in a professional setting, um, yeah. which is kind of incredible, really, you know, that they achieve that. But equally, it's quite sad that the funding doesn't exist to have, I mean, if you look at Germany and they'll have a radio choir per every city, you know, it's kind of, yeah. it's a very different scene really here. 
But I guess the positive of that is how busy the amateur choral world is in this country. Mm, yeah. Have you had much experience with the amateur choral world from a conducting point of view? Yeah, I would say that that's probably my, how I kind of, well, I still, I still conduct uh, an amateur choral society, Stafford Choral Society, and I'm the associate conductor for Huddersfield Choral Society. And I think that that work for me was, I was kind of already doing that work whilst I was studying and kind of immediately after I left university. And I think that work really uh, led me to continue conducting, both from a technical point of view where I, I was just gaining confidence by having to stand on the podium nearly every night of the week at some <laughs> at some points in those years. Certainly kind of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night was all different choral societies. And I think it was a real confidence building time for me. And also the financial support that they were giving me, you know, being able to study and my financial support coming from actually doing the job that I wanted to do, if you know what I mean. You know, I didn't have to yeah. work in a cafe on the side. I could actually go and conduct to earn my money. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I'm really grateful that I could do that um, as my work on the side of my studying. And so was this while you were studying at the RNCM? Yeah, that was, um, so it was immediately after I came out of university, actually, I had a year off, well, not off, I had a year working. Um, I worked for Opera North as a vocal delivery artist, which was, which is quite a posh term, but <laughs> effectively going into schools and linking to their main stage productions and, and getting primary school children to sing and instilling the discipline of what learning a musical instrument or learning to sing what comes with that as a discipline. So not expecting everyone to become an opera singer by the end of it at all, um, but really thinking about a kind of holistic approach to learning and why music is important in that. And then as well as working for Opera North, I was doing these choral society jobs as well. And I've stayed with it. Yeah, I mean, I joined Stafford Choral a couple of years ago now. And uh, yeah, they're still going strong. We're on Zoom. <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to keep spirits high, you know, kind of bridge mm. the gap between now and when we can finally meet again. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. difficult. I've been doing virtual rehearsals with one of my community choirs yeah. and we've got to that point where we've been learning new things and there are backing tracks that they can listen to. And when I say, how's it going? Everyone's giving me a thumbs up. <laughs> so I trust that it's going yeah. well. Um, but it's got to that point where there's nothing more you can do without hearing it. Yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? And and I feel so much for the people on the other end because uh, it must be so strange singing without having anyone else around you. And especially for those members who really thrive on hearing the person next to them and that gives them that little ounce of confidence to just sing that little bit louder than normal or even silly things like you say the page number on Zoom and then if you miss that on the end of Zoom, then you can't look at the person next to you and see which page you're on, you know? <laughs> Just all those little things that happen in rehearsals. Um, it's a very strange thing, but I'm also really, really grateful that Zoom exists because actually we have kept a sense of morale going with the Choral Society and uh, they're sending in recordings, I'm stitching them together, then we can kind of sing back with ourselves when we do our mini concerts and so on. And there are ways to keep to keep the choir engaged, even if it's not this, quite the same as, as real life. With those backing tracks, are you singing them yourself or...? Uh, yeah, sadly. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's the that's the least joyous bit of the whole experience. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful because uh, Pete Durrant, our accompanist, is also uh, he's singing the tenor and bass tracks, and I'm singing the soprano and alto tracks. Um, oh, good. And yeah, they're going up on YouTube. 
unlisted. Um, and, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's fine. It's it's a uh, something that's useful for the choir, and I just have to apologise for my soprano notes. I am absolutely not a soprano, and my top A's are diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been um, recording the parts of between a lot of pitch shifting. Yeah, yeah, Pete's been doing that. He sends me the recordings. He's like, uh, "Here I am as a Hoover." <laughs> That's good. Oh dear. it's it's quite hilarious. But again, it's just better than nothing, isn't it? It's making the most out of of the situation. And and I know that there are choirs who basically haven't been able to get up and running digitally. Mm. And and actually, it's also testament to the members that they're willing to engage with the digital staff and to send in recordings. You know, that's a huge thing. That's really quite nerve wracking. And so I always bear that in mind, you know, when on Zoom, I'm trying to be almost more positive, actually, than I am in in the room normally, because <laughs> it's so, it must be so difficult just singing at home. And, and I can't even go to Pete's house at the moment. So I can't conduct at the same time as Pete's playing. And I can't, you know, maybe sing along with the soprano line, because obviously there's this delay on Zoom. Um so right, that's, that's, that's our next, yeah, I mean, the next step would be, I mean, it looks like we're heading into a, a worse lockdown in Manchester, but if the <laughs> lockdown did slightly lift, that I could go to Pete's house and then at least one bit of lag, you know, is is taken away from the whole thing. I'd not thought of that because with me, I'm playing the piano as well. Yeah. So I'd, so I'd not thought of like how you've got two levels of delay, exactly. which is even worse. Yeah. And I, and I keep trying to explain that it does. <laughs> I promise it doesn't work if I conduct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had lots of experiments in that department, didn't we, with Cantos? Uh, oh yeah, we did. <laughs> Good old Jamulus. <laughs> yeah. Are you using that at all anymore? Well, I'm not. I mean, to be honest, the only group I would use it for is Cantos because it looked. It seemingly was that you could only have about 10 people on at a time, mm. which for us meant we could have about 15 with the people who lived together and could be therefore on the same uh, microphone. So it's not appropriate for a large choral society. And also the technology involved with it is not as simple as, you know, clicking the link to turn up to Zoom. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, for Cantos, I'm, I'm just, uh, now I'm just working towards us doing things in person safely because it's a small enough group that we can for now. <laughs> and so, mm. so, you know, that's where I'm at with Cantos. I think Jamulus was a really important thing for us to look at at the time when we couldn't meet in person. But now that we legally can, that's where I'm now at, I guess. This episode of Classical Music Now is supported by Dorico, the advanced music notation software from Steinberg. Dorico is designed to save you time, whether you're a composer or arranger, a teacher or student, working in music engraving and publishing, or producing music for media. It gives you the tools to produce beautiful scores faster than any other tool, so you can spend less time in front of your computer and more time doing what you love. Making music, making music. 
Dorico is available in three versions, including Dorico SE, which is completely free to download and use. Check it out today at steinberg.net slash Dorico, or use the link in the description to show them you came from us. Yeah, it's an interesting point with the community choirs, the amateur choirs. Uh, when you're talking about Opera North, you've got this discipline element, but then that's contrasted with enjoyment. So with the community choirs, a huge amount of it is just something to enjoy. And I feel like the Zoom rehearsals with choral societies are actually much more of that now because you can't have the discipline because you just can't hear them. Well, yeah, it's exactly that. And also, even in kind of normal times, for many members, that's their social, that's their hobby, you know, and they obviously they've got their own group of friends. But if you know you go to choir every single Monday night and that's suddenly wiped out from your diary, that can be quite a big thing, actually. And um, yeah, I, what we haven't experimented yet with Stafford is having breakout rooms to do some sort of social break in the choir break. Because that's a huge part, you know, is the cup of tea and the biscuit and the break and yeah. chatting to, to your friends. And I'm really aware of that, actually, that we, it, it is just strange because it does feel like a two-man show, you know, me and Pete just tag teaming, me saying, oh, let's go from here, let's do this and not really getting anything back. And actually, I think the singers really enjoy the five minutes that we have before we start the rehearsal where everyone can shout across to each other on Zoom and so on <laughs> um, and the break. Um so I think finding a way of using the breakout rooms a little bit more carefully so that they can have more, you know, useful conversations with each other rather than obviously you can only really have two people talking in front mm. of the 60 people on the Zoom call. Um, so it's on the back burner, I think, for the committee and, and for me to work out how, how we can make that work well. Do you think you might change your style when you go back to real life? <laughs> well i mean we won't be we probably won't be uh milling about having cups of tea and stuff um I, interestingly enough i have actually been back to i've depth for a couple of rehearsals recently for huddersfield choral and the william bird singers in manchester william birds an amateur chamber choir and huddersfield's well quite a famous amateur choral society and it's very weird you know losing that social side of it i mean the William Bird singers, we did go outside for the breaks. We had to leave the ro- the building to have the break so the room would be, I mm, know, clever. ventilated or whatever uh, for 10 minutes. And therefore you can do your chatting for a bit. But for Huddersfield, it's it was really a matter of the sopranos turned up, they sang for 45 minutes, they left. Then the altos turned up, they sang for 45 minutes, they left. And it's... It's just a bit, it's just quite sad, you know. I mean, they're determined, they're coming in, that's fantastic. And the singing itself, you know, the the rehearsal is fairly the same as normal other than the fact that we only had one voice part. But obviously, as everyone leaves, there's this kind of mood of silence, I guess. It's really quiet. Everyone puts their mask on and everyone just walks out the room and and goes home again. And and it just has doesn't have that... Um, there's not the end of rehearsal buzz. There's not the break buzz, you know, which is so much a part of it, actually. You know, when when Stafford do eventually go back, that's going to be a really funny one, I think, because I'm kind of tied into that with them. You know, I, I feel like I'm part of their, you know, oh, hi, how are you doing? All of this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it, it just feels a bit strange if you're standing outside and you're wearing a mask. <laughs> 
So in terms of your uh, your choral development, um, when you were at the RNCM, you were studying orchestral conducting as well, weren't you? Yeah. Um, so I was on the orchestral conducting masters, but with a kind of choral leaning. Um, and <laughs> so it kind of meant that where there were choral opportunities, I would be kind of given a little bit of preference. And uh, I worked with uh, particularly with the RNCM Chamber Choir and Symphonic Chorus whilst I was there as the kind of assistant conductor. So yeah, it was actually really quite amazing because I got the best of both worlds, really. Uh, I continued my choral development, but I was actually most keen to get better at orchestral conducting, to be honest. I had a lot more experience standing up in front of choirs and a lot less experience standing in front of orchestras. So it kind of, it changed that. It kind of leveled things up a little bit for me. And helped me, well, I guess, work out where I wanted to head in the future and, and that I didn't want to be pigeonholed as just a choral conductor. So you see yourself doing orchestra stuff as well in the future? I hope so, yeah. That's that's mm. really the, the way I want to go. I, I, I feel quite strongly that there shouldn't be this line between orchestral and choral conductors because I think uh, you should just be uh, clear and helpful and useful <laughs> and a good <laughs> a good leader, you know, and able to shape the music and if you come to a large-scale orchestral choral work and you can't work with either the choir or the orchestra then you're not much use in the room um, so yeah. I really think that, that the two should be absolutely interlinked and there's no reason that we should see them as two different fields at all. I suppose they're different areas of expertise in terms of things you need to become an expert on mm. like you've got twice the work in a way. Yeah I in some ways, but then I think it's it's kind of interesting because with a choir, there's almost this expectation that a choral conductor would be a singer or would have had some singing training. Whereas if you stand in front of an orchestra, you're not an expert on every single different instrument in the mm. orchestra. So you might have had orchestral experience playing, but obviously with a choir, everyone in front of you is a singer, whereas in an orchestra, everyone's playing a different instrument. And you might say, well, you know, being a string player is quite useful because that's you know, a fairly decent chunk of the people in front of you but again I, I think that just serves to prove that you can be a good conductor and you don't you need to know as much as you can about everyone if you see what I mean <laughs> yeah yeah like why should the choir be excluded from that group of people you're supposed to know everything about exactly exactly yeah. that yeah and also I, I also think that you you will never be as expert as the person playing their instrument. You can't tell, you know, if you're looking at a professional orchestra, they can play their violin better than you can tell them how to play their violin. <laughs> so there's a point where actually that's where, the, for me, the collaboration comes in where you want to say, you know, I want it to sound like this and then leave it to the players to <laughs> to do what, <laughs> to get that. You know, you're not going to tell them how to do that. Um, they will find the way to do that extremely well, be way better than you will. I always find it, uh, I suppose, impressive when I see famous conductors saying, oh, you know, you need to do this with the bow or you need to do this with the left hand for like a string player. Yeah. And I'm like, ooh, you're, you're brave. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> that, that's stuff. great when you, you know, if you know exactly what a technique is going to get you and then and you've really thought about it and, and perhaps you have expertise in that instrument as well, then great. But I think also there's a call to ask for the sound you want. And then if you don't know exactly how to get it, then ask the leader, you know, this is the sound I want. And then they can, you know, pass back the, the best way they think they want it to be to be created. And that's not to say you've got no knowledge of the instruments. Of course, you've got, you know, <laughs> an understanding of, of the instruments in front of you. But um, uh, there's no need to be 
I don't know. I I feel like we we don't want to have this this sense that the person standing on the podium is all knowing and knows you know knows more than everyone else in the room. I think that's quite a dangerous sort of way of being, even in in any sort of situation with a leader. You know, there's something quite horrible to be honest about that sort of <laughs> that sort of feeling. Do you ever get pushback from that where the orchestra or the choir are expecting you to know more about the nuts and bolts? Um, I don't think I've felt that. I mean, I feel it in myself. I always feel like I want to know more and should know more. You know, that's kind of that classic imposter syndrome. But I also do want to always know more, you know, and I'm absolutely aware that I'm only at the very beginning of my career and that there's so much more to learn, so much more repertoire, so much more knowledge within that repertoire of how certain things should be and the best way to get that and so on. So I think that's always on my mind anyway. But I think on the whole, you know, if as long as you're doing the best job you possibly can and you're not in a situation where you're completely out of your depth, then people appreciate that you're doing your job and they're doing their job. And, you know, as long as the the atmosphere is positive and the music making is good, then then that's okay. When I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about how there's definitely a parallel between thinking about conductors and thinking about managers. You usually expect managers to have spent some time doing like the jobs that they're then going to manage. Like there's a kind of, oh, what do you know kind of thing if you're being managed by someone who doesn't know the stuff themselves. And I, I kind of, I've, I mean, I've not been in a professional orchestra, obviously, but I've heard people talk about how you get plenty of grumpy players who are like, oh, what does this person know? Like, what does this young upstart know? I think that's true. And I think wherever you go, you're going to meet people who, well, in a professional orchestra, there are people who it's their, they go in every single day and that's their job. So some days are going to be fantastic. And there might be some days where you just don't, you know, you had a really poor night's sleep. You, I don't know, you were late for the school run and then you have to turn up to the orchestra rehearsal and you're just not, it's just not for you that day, you know? And that's the same in any profession. I guess it's just remembering that when it comes to that sort of situation, then it it is a profession and it's different to the amateur scene where it's a hobby and people have chosen to come on a Monday night. And if they've had an absolutely awful day, they don't have to come to choir on Monday nights. <laughs> um, so I think it's worth remembering that um, although it's, an incredible job and most people in the profession are extremely grateful that they can do something that is creative and artistic as their job it is also a job and it is how they earn their money and you are in charge of keeping the atmosphere in the room alive and engaging and exciting and if you don't then yeah people can be grumpy (laughs) and Mm. um I think I don't know. I think that as a conductor, you have to have quite a thick skin to look over that. And it's really easy to, it's also really, this is a really important point, is that it's really easy to mix um, a grumpy face with someone who's actually just really concentrating. Um, <laughs> and what they're doing in front of you is, it's a lot of things all at once. They're looking at their music, they're thinking about their playing, and they're trying to look at you, and they're trying to listen to everything around. You know, there's so many things going on often it's easy to look at someone and think, oh my gosh, they hate me. They absolutely hate me. And they haven't even had a second thought about you yet, you know? (laughs) So Mm. there's a a lot of um, psychology involved in it, actually. And I mean, I'm still getting used to that. And actually the six-month break is is kind of annoying because I feel like I was getting to a point where 
I say it's kind of annoying as if like a global pandemic is kind of annoying. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of <lame. laughs> yeah. Gosh, it's just really flying the ointment. Um, but um, it's, I felt like I was getting to a point where I wasn't being, you know, I, I'm always critical of myself, but I wasn't getting to that stage of being so hypercritical that it was actually making me, you know, like a shell of who I actually am. And actually you've just got to get over the fact that some people don't want to be there that day. And that's not your fault and it's not your problem either and you just go in the next day and you're just positive again and those who are positive and are, and are on your side they're having a great time so you know do it for them do it for the audience that's great <laughs> mm, yeah no that sounds super healthy it's interesting how much of like the inner attitude comes through and and often so much of it is uncontrollable like it's it you can't show a believable face like if, if you're trying to show something in the music or if you're trying to show that you're concentrating it's very hard to do that consciously as opposed to this is how I'm feeling inside and this is kind of what's being projected outwards yeah do you mean from a, a player's point of view or from from the conductor's point of view from the conductor's point of view I was just I've been watching a few masterclasses recently on on YouTube and you're on with the Britain Peers um, Youth Orchestra as well and I was I was thinking often in these um, masterclass environments, you're often there's so much to think about because you you know you've got usually quite a famous instructor in the room, and then you're thinking about all these things I need to remember, and then there's feedback that you're then trying to like take on in real time. And in your case, you only had like six minutes yeah. <laughs> with the orchestra, <laughs> and I think it's so much that. Um, well certain conductors talk about is your face like how much you can do with literally just your pure intention yeah and then you have these master classes where it's so hard to have an intention that comes through because you've got six different things to think about sure and it's kind of an unnatural environment as well because mm. everyone's looking at you effectively picking apart your conducting it's it's kind of just like standing up there and taking off all your clothes on the podium master classes <laughs> like it's really that sort of feeling and actually doing the masters in conducting was really useful for just getting over that feeling in a masterclass because there's so much to gain from a masterclass so much mm -hmm. and if you yeah like you say there's so many things to think about if you get too worked up in the moment you can really miss the vital help and, and often a masterclass is about engaging with the person who's teaching absolutely wholeheartedly in the moment you know everything they ask you to try try it and I've been in these terrible masterclasses where someone effectively refuses to do what the teacher's saying. And it's that's quite awkward. And really, my opinion is you take absolutely everything they're asking you to do. You throw yourself at it and you do something that might feel a little bit uncomfortable, but certainly new for you. And then afterwards, you know, you can watch it back on your video or whatever. You think, oh, does, you know, does that work? Does that not actually suit me very well? You know, I'm, I'm a very different... I don't know, I'm a different build to that conductor or that sort of face actually, or that sort of handshake makes me look actually kind of angry, not intense or something like that. You know what I mean? So it's a lot about throwing yourself at it in the moment and then taking away those bits of gold dust that really, really work for you and that really uh, kind of shape you as a conductor.
how did you find your experience with the Britain Peers? Um, because it, it was more than just the six-minute masterclass, wasn't it? You had some other days that weren't filmed. Uh, yeah, we did. So I was actually there as a, an observer place, so we had slightly less to do, although we still got to conduct, which is great, because normally mm. an observer wouldn't. But yeah, it was taught by Marin Alsop, who is obviously probably one of the most famous conductors alive at the moment. She was really inspiring and, um, again, just gave me these tips that I thought I can really work with that. Do you know what I mean? It, maybe not exactly that right for me right now, but I can really bring that into what I want to do, like how I'm going to get this out of the orchestra. And we were actually there for two weeks, I think. Oh, wow. In Oldborough. And oh my gosh, it's the most beautiful part of the country, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I, it wasn't just an experience for kind of learning for the orchestra and for the conductors. It was just an experience to make music in the most kind of relaxing, open environment where, you know, you rehearse quite hard all day and then you go and swim in the sea <laughs> and have a beer on the beach. And your mind is just so open when you're just completely surrounded by nature. And I would say that if anyone's not been to Oldborough, they must go because the walking, um, we did some running, a bit of swimming, just the atmosphere in the town and by the beach and around snake maltings is just the most kind of amazing place to open your mind to how an environment is also just as important for music making. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was a great two weeks. It was a long time ago now. I really miss that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done many summer schools? Um, not a huge amount. Um, I mean, not recently. I think the Britain Pierce was possibly the last one I did. I have been doing these Royal Opera House uh, Women Conductors courses, though, um, mm. which actually kind of ran slightly in summer, so maybe that counts. Um, and, yeah, they're, they've been amazing. Um, we've had t teaching from um, Sean Edwards, Jess Cottis, um, Alice Farnham, among others, um, with uh, professional singers and professional groups, kind of smaller ensembles. And they even ran one for us on Zoom in lockdown, which was amazing <laughs> and kept me going, to be honest, at a point where I just couldn't open a score because um, mm. it all felt a little bit pointless. Um, and those courses have been really great because I'm, I'm really, really interested in opera because I think for me it combines the choral and the orchestral in one. And it's something that I really would absolutely love to go and work in kind of more I guess, long-term or more frequently, because I think part of it is that you work over a longer period of time in the rehearsal room. So you don't fly in and do three rehearsals in a concert and then goodbye, everyone. You know, you're there for six weeks usually, and then you've got a number of shows. So it's kind of like, not the pressure's off or anything, but just that you've, you do it once sometimes with a concert and then you think, oh, that was that. <laughs> Whereas yeah. with an opera, you get that run of shows and and I think that's actually really nice for music making as well, for everyone involved, because it feels like there's a little bit more meaning in the in the collaboration between all the different people that are involved in making an opera and so on. So, yeah, those courses with the Opera House have been really quite eye opening for me and really, really useful. Because it often feels when you do a one off concert, especially if you've been working on it for a, a long time in the case of uni choirs, maybe like a whole term on these pieces and you've been really trying to find all the details and all the intricacies and then you do it once yeah <laughs> and then it's just like it, it feels it's like such a strange payoff for that amount of work whereas if you're doing opera you get multiple performances and I guess you can having that performance experience multiple times it's a little bit like having kind of pupil concert before an exam like you get to do it in performance and you're like oh okay these are the things that happen when it's actually in performance yeah. rather than a rehearsal 
and then you actually get to do it again yeah, <laughs> and exactly, fix those things. Exactly. And I mean, nerves are funny things, aren't they? And yeah, I think there's something about that. And you can kind of have the best of both worlds, I think, because always in both things are good in that if you do work for a concert and then it's like the moment and only that audience that were there got that thing, you know, and, and you're, we know we're all working towards that one golden performance. That's also a nice thing. But Equally, that thing where you miss a detail or you just make a mistake or something like that and you just desperately want to do it again. <laughs> um, mm. I think that's quite nice about the repeat performances. Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. Um, I think there's merit in both. But I personally, especially when it comes to something where you've rehearsed for so long, like the idea that you can do it twice. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> Mark Elder started in opera as well, didn't he? And he's been a, a bit of a mentor recently. Yeah, so he comes into the RNCM a lot to to teach masterclasses. And then I was lucky enough to be the Halle Youth Orchestra director last year. So we had a few kind of uh, chats through that as well. And I find him really inspiring, actually, um, particularly when I was at the RNCM when he was teaching our masterclasses. I think this kind of sums up his teaching is that he wouldn't even be looking at the conductor as they were conducting. He'd be reading the score in so much detail whilst they were conducting just listening, just ears open, listening to what the conductor's getting out of the orchestra. So he's not even looked at them, then he'll stop and then he says to the conductor, you know, did you hear what happened in bar 17? <laughs> and then we all go, mm. uh. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, no, it was a, it was a real um, eye-opening experience, actually, that he wasn't, he's, he's um, completely self-taught, you know, technique-wise. So he's not right. in a school of technique or anything like that. Mm. Um, so... It, all he's bothered about is that the person standing on the podium can hear and can affect the sound. And whether that means you wave both hands in the air or <laughs> or stand extremely <laughs> still and, and just point a finger. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, it's obviously not... He has a, a technique that gets the Halle Orchestra through incredibly complex repertoire. Um, but as a teacher, you know, that was actually a really inspiring way to teach and a very different way of teaching. Yeah, very different. That sounds really interesting. I often find it... Um interesting that we don't specifically develop our oral skills in a concentrated way when it seems so important you know obviously we do it in the context of other things but it's usually not the main focus but as a as a profession half of what we do is listening if not more (laughs) yeah I totally agree and I found this six months really strange actually because I've I found it really difficult to open a score for something that I know I'm not going to be doing you know and almost really difficult to just to even listen to to a lot of classical music even. Um, mm. I don't know. It just feels like almost like a gap in time. <laughs> it's very strange. And I, I think it gives me a bit of a, it kind of makes me wallow a bit if I, if I'm, uh, if I'm listening or looking at a score, which is kind of, it's, it's quite sad really, because it seems like the most, the, the most perfect time to get to grips with more repertoire, to develop my oral skills and so on. But by not regularly working with an orchestra or a choir, it's it just it's a really strange thing. It's like a little flame that's just kind of burning in the background at the moment, and and it's just coming back to life now that I'm working with groups again and and in real life. It's really inspired me to get back on with it and to try to use this time more wisely. But I would say that I really struggled in the first few months, and I really struggled with seeing people being really productive and saying that this is the perfect time to be to learn all your scores that you never learn and I, I found that really difficult because I just I didn't have the motivation to do that at all and I feel like now that I feels like there's a sense of some things happening again 
it feels you know more natural to be honing those skills again and to be getting kind of back on the horse I think a lot of people had that experience it, it goes to show how much the act of music making is tied to a live experience yeah I've really not had any inspiration to obviously I've been doing the podcast and, and we have like a piece of the month blog series with no dice but I've not been inspired to do like a recorded concert or anything like that it, and I don't particularly know why but like the lack of an audience it just seems it doesn't seem to make sense to do a concert if there's no one there to hear it yeah it's it's a really difficult um decision to make obviously we made that decision with Cantos that we were going to do a recorded concert um I guess you just have to think really carefully about the way it comes across on the digital platform and perhaps that it shouldn't be just the same as a camera as if you were sitting in the audience, you know, because like you say, there's obviously something lost between a live performance and a video of a live performance. So I think as we progress with Cantos through this, the questions really have to be asked about how we present it, you know, does a 45-minute concert work on social media? And I think for our recent project in the field, I think it worked because, quite frankly, we were in a field <laughs> and there's something <laughs> quite different about that. And there was also really stunning photography from Jamie, you know, with this, these drone shots and things like that, which obviously as an audience member, even if you were in the field, you wouldn't be flying high above the choir <laughs> in real life. So it's it's really important to bear that in mind and to not just well, in my opinion, not just film a concert as normal. You know, this is the perfect time to get a camera right up into the trombone's face, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I, I don't know what the... What the I, I don't know what the answer is, whether... I just don't know. But I think with Cantos, we're going to try <laughs> and see, see what we can do um, with the digital... Yeah, I think it's a learning process for everyone involved, isn't it? And it's also a bit of a reckoning with digital media because classical music has famously been, uh, I don't know if unembracing is is a fair description, but certainly not on a cutting edge or kind of pushing the medium. Yeah. And you've got people like National Theatre doing multi-angle recordings yeah. of their productions and they're really reaping the benefits now because they're one of the only theatres who had that and that much investment in that type of medium. Um, I've always thought there's a lot you could do with video where you can show things on the screen at the same time and it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be different angles, but even some level of description or you could use color to show you like changes in a piece and it feels like there's a lot of potential there because you're able to do things that you couldn't do in the kind of the flesh space as it's called (laughs) which is grim um (laughs) it's actually called the meat space so i don't know if you think that's grimmer or not but it feels like we're still trying to figure out what those things are because it is a different way of thinking yeah, I, I agree totally. And, that, and that's exactly it, isn't it? It's finding out what actually is specific to digital to make it engaging, really. That's the most important thing. Like we have to keep an audience engaged. Otherwise, what are we returning to? Um, mm. And I say returning to, you know, it's not going to be the same, you know, and it's not going to be the same for a long time. And should we return to the same if we've got digital going properly and better and in the right way? You know, should it be a combination now of the digital and, and the in in the flesh performance. Um, yeah, and, and I really like the fact that with Cantos, I guess I've got this kind of freedom to experiment with that, you know, because I can be in control of the artistic side of things. 
that's kind of a really lucky position for me. And and also one of the things that I guess keeps me going at the moment, because when the gigs are so few and far between, to have something that you can, and hopefully you feel like this with No Dice, you feel like there's kind of your little baby there that you can do things <laughs> yeah. with and work things out, kind of get through this with almost. Yeah. Yeah, I found I've had like a real burst of energy recently because I've had an idea for an open air performance. Yeah. Um, and obviously there's a lot of hurdles to doing it. It's, it'll be like a mass performance. So it'd be there's a lot of hurdles to doing something like that at the moment and yeah. obviously doing it safely. But I've just had such a burst of energy in just finding out like, how is it possible? Like, even though it's basically administrative work and like nitty gritty, what activities does the government allow like that we could do? Oh, it could be like a work project or it could be a protest. Like those are the two things that it could be, you know, like it's quite nitty gritty. Yeah. But just the act of creating a concert, I think has, it's shown me like how what's usually termed like administration it can be very creative, like you are doing a lot of out of the box thinking and it can be very creatively rewarding and inspiring, basically. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. And and also it's really nice to have the time as well. You know, as much as I mm. resent the days where I have absolutely nothing on, where, you know, where I don't have to leave the house, I do really appreciate the time to think carefully and I've had loads of time to go. I love running and I I just think on these runs, you know, try and run on the Mersey and stuff, you know, see a bit of nature. And I use that time often just to think and I have usually have my best ideas there or in the middle of the night. <laughs> and that freedom, I guess, is, is really nice. And then to be able to put my full energy into, I don't know, writing the program notes for Cantos for In the Field. Often that's, I find that really stressful, not because I don't want to do it, because I don't feel like I've got enough time to do it well enough And it feels like I'm trying to write it, you know, on my laptop on the way to Stafford on a Monday night or something like that. Do you know what (laughs) I mean? Um, And and it feels like it's under pressure and therefore doesn't feel as creative as doing it calmly and getting it right and getting everything I want to say out and so on. So it's, it's tiny details like that, actually, that just having that this extra bit of time, it has really opened my mind to how if things do pick up again and, and things go back to being busy again, how do I want my life to look? You know, do I want to try and keep some time for me and keep some time maybe for Cantos even? It throws up those interesting questions, I think. Yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. Because mm. the thing is with my choirs, I don't know if it's the same for you, probably is, but there's so much preparation time. Mm. And um, because I'm doing all my choirs through the local music service, I get the same pay for an hour of choir as I do for an hour of sub-grade one piano. <laughs> <laughs> And I've really been thinking like, oh, like how much time would I get back? Especially because there's that kind of sole focus on you as the conductor. There's like a real performance aspect to it. So it's like multiple times a week. It's as though you've got a concert that you're performing in. Yeah. Like you, you really need to be on yeah. for these people. And so the rest of the day, you you might be preparing, but you don't necessarily have your full level of energy to spend on other things because you're kind of saving yourself for the evening. And I've been thinking, well... If I had one choir, then I'd have so much more time for no dice. Yeah, it's really, it's a funny balance, isn't it? And it's it's funny that it takes a complete stop to make you realise what, mm. you know, when you're actually doing things that you do want to do in your life, it actually takes a complete stop from doing anything <laughs> that you're allowed to do, whether you like it or not, to make you work out what it is. Like for me, I, um, the kind of the evenings, 
I I guess I worked this out before the pandemic really was that I found going to a different choral society, you know, nearly every night of the week and getting home at 10.30 p.m. and having dinner at 5 p.m., you know, in the car park. Um, I, I think I just found that really miserable. And the thing in, in lockdown <laughs> has been wonderful evening meals, you know, all, and it's so funny to just to just love an evening meal, but I really do. I love having an evening meal and then, you know, not doing anything after that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so but it's so difficult because at the same time, I would love to go back to my choral society right now. <laughs> um, mm. But I, I also know that I really want to get further along with my career. And if I were working more frequently at a professional level, then I'd be working in the daytime a lot more and so on. Um, obviously, concerts are usually in the evening, but that's a concert and that's slightly different. Um, but yeah, I, I've really enjoyed getting into this kind of I say nine till five, that would be a complete lie. <laughs> 10 <laughs> till two, <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> 11 till one routine yeah. of, um, <laughs> of actually um, doing my work um, in the daytime. And then the evening is mine and um, doing, you know, all these computer things that we have to do these days. Um, so yeah, I think there are things to learn, aren't there? And, and to, to change should, should life become normal again. A big thank you to Ellie Slorak for joining me on the podcast. It's really nice to talk to someone who views conducting in a less mystical way. Often you watch conducting classes or things that are available publicly and it's like, oh, conducting. Really, there's a lot to be done for it being less obsessed with genius personalities and being more accessible. So um, big thank you to Ellie for that great conversation. Um, if you do enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or even join the mailing list where you'll never miss a podcast episode. And we do piece of the month where we send out recommended piece by a composer or a performer. And I found loads of great pieces that way. It's not me doing the recommending, don't worry. <laughs> so we're going to end with some music, of course. Here is Rory Wainwright-Johnston's Ave Maria, as performed by Cantos and me, in the <laughs> for their In the Field project. I'll see you next time.